Well, it's good to be here with you all this evening to see many familiar faces that uh, we've gotten to know each other for many years and many cases here. It's also good to see many new faces, and it's a joy to gather together. I'm thankful as uh, we are here tonight uh, to see so many people interested to talk about the glory of God and to consider the majesty of our God uh, together. I confess, uh, I always feel a sense of, um, well, I guess some sort of poetic justice when I'm up here in this pulpit, uh, because my distance students get seasick when I teach in the class, because the camera follows me and I tend to move back and forth. So I'm stuck here um, on a little bit of a terrifying platform, um, and hopefully we'll stay put. But with that in view, it is a joy to talk about knowing God tonight. What I'd like us to do is draw our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I'm going to direct our attention to the entirety of the chapter this evening. And one thing that I tell my students often in class is that we don't simply need to pick up the words of Scripture, but the reasoning of Scripture. And in this case, not simply just Paul's teaching, but his arguments, not just what he says, but why he says it. And so perhaps keep that in view as I read the text, and we'll seek together to pull through 1 Corinthians 2 in connection to the rest of the book in many ways. So beginning in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thought of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, let us unite our hearts once again briefly in prayer. Blessed Father, we do ask that you would grant us the Holy Spirit this evening as you have taught us to pray in Jesus' name and to ask for his presence and power and work in our hearts. So, Lord, grant abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We praise you for who you are and for your wondrous works, and we pray that you would make both known to us this evening as we seek to walk before you. And we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, you've noticed, I'm sure, that this conference and the focus of this conference is on the attributes of God. And in a sense, as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this evening, what I'm actually doing for us is drawing a circle around the whole conference. Rather than singling out a particular attribute of God, I'm asking a bigger and a deeper question. Why does it matter? What good is it, in other words, if we are filled with wonder and awe at the attributes of God, and we can define them, we can defend them, we can describe our God, but ultimately we don't bow before him in reverent worship. What I'm really getting at is, do we know God? Not just do we know about him, not just do we have under information that we gather from the scriptures, but do we actually know him? Just as many of you know the people you're sitting next to right now, or children, you know your siblings, you know your parents. Is God simply an abstract thought for us? Is he simply something that is far off and in the distance? Or is he near to us? Is he dear to us? Do we actually know him? And what I'm getting at tonight is as we think about knowing God, we need to understand what it actually means to know God and why this is significant. And what I'm really getting at is all of the attributes we're talking about, all the characteristics of God, need to fit in this context. We don't simply learn about him. We need to know him personally. Now, this is a, a theology conference. And an interesting question that many have thought of for centuries, but maybe we have to a greater or lesser degree, is the question, what is theology? Is it simply a science about God giving us factual information? For that matter, the word itself isn't in the Bible, is it? But when we look at the Bible and we ask the question, what is, our th what is theology? Perhaps, at least in my mind, we ought to be drawn more in the direction of our Reformed forefathers, especially in the 17th century, who said something like this, theology is the doctrine of living to God. Or the long version, the doctrine of living to God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. 
And what does this give us? It reminds us in everything that we do that we're not simply here to inform our minds, but to draw our hearts near to the living and true God. We need to know God, and we need to walk with God. Well, what I want to do in that general theme is look at three things in particular from this text. It's not because I'm up here as a preacher trying to come up with an arbitrary three points, but I really do think Paul has three movements in the argument here. Ultimately, what he's saying is you need to know the true God through his son, Jesus Christ. And as he pushes us in that direction, he begins with the means. And then he moves to the matter and then ultimately to the mover. So I've got three M's. Hopefully that's simple. That's easy to remember. But there is a great means God gives us of knowing God, the preaching of Jesus Christ. The matter is divine revelation. God literally tells you something that you could never know any other way unless God told you. But God is also the mover. The Holy Spirit not only teaches us what to believe about Christ, but he gives us hearts to receive Jesus Christ. And it is this structure, it's this type of argument that Paul is giving here that actually teaches us what it looks like to know God, to use the means to come to him through his son, to be those who receive the subject matter the Spirit teaches and to receive it in our hearts by the same Spirit. Well, let's look at these one at a time. Notice first in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul stresses the means of preaching. Now, I'm convinced more and more that in light of the comments I opened with about not just picking up the words of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture, the subject matter of Scripture, but the reasons of Scripture, we miss the pastoral genius of 1 Corinthians. This is the proverbial church, isn't it? That for all the pastors in this room, we often walk away and say, uh, whatever problems I face in my church, I'm sure glad that I wasn't pastoring in Corinth. Because here in the church in Corinth, there are not only divisions, people of all things dividing even over baptism, which is meant to unite Christians, and they're deciding who has the best pastor, the best baptism, who's the best leader to follow. They are divided over lawsuits in the church and bringing one another to court. They are judgmental against one another. Rather than being humbled by seeing the sins of those around them and applying the process of church discipline properly, they're proud. At least I'm not like that man over there. At least I'm not sexually immoral like him or like her. They have confusion over marriage. They are chaotic in their use of spiritual gifts. Their worship services have gone so far off the rails, if we can fathom it, there are people actually getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And some of them even denied the resurrection of the dead. Again, we look at the church in Corinth and say, I'm sure glad I don't go there. I'm sure glad I don't pastor there. But I said a moment ago, I think people miss the pastoral genius of what Paul is doing because there is one problem that faced the church in Corinth and verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2 are actually designed to enter that or, or answer that one problem. 
the one problem that the church in Corinth had was that they were thinking in terms of worldly wisdom rather than the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, they were putting themselves first, then others around them, and then the Lord perhaps in the background, if at all. Now, maybe that's too harsh to say, if at all. But when we think about the problems in Corinth and we start seeing the strifes and the division and the debates over the baptisms and the lawsuits, it struck me very recently that when we look at the modern Reformed Church today, we actually begin to see many of the same things, many of the same characteristics. And just go look at people's social media posts, for example. I mean, this is becoming proverbial, isn't it? Uh, Everybody knows that when they post things online, somebody's going to get in the pulpit and talk about them and say, we say things online that we never say to one another in person, and yet we still do it, as though the world just goes on. And the impression that we get is that as Reformed people, The only thing we're concerned about is being right. We're not concerned about holding the right thing in the right way. But I'm right, you're wrong, and you're an idiot. Or if you're too much of an idiot, you're probably unconverted. And as we begin to see this caustic tone, Maybe we should ask ourselves, are we a lot more similar to the Corinthians than we thought? Now, Paul's major answer to the Corinthians is stop thinking in worldly terms. Stop thinking in terms of the wisdom of this world. Think of the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. The great means that they need is the preaching of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're beginning. If we need to know God... We need to begin with this great means of preaching Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring us to the Father. Now, notice what Paul is actually stressing here in verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony, or some of your translations have mystery there. Hold your mind there for a moment, and I'll come back to it. The testimony of God with lofty speech or of wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what's going on? Why were the Corinthians divided? Perhaps they were more concerned about their theology, their practices, their parties, certainly, and their particular group than they were about the true knowledge of the true God in Jesus Christ. And we can see the fruits, can't we? Are we seeing some of the fruits now? What Paul is actually getting at is that God has revealed to us something astonishing. God has given us true wisdom when we had none. In our own wisdom, in the wisdom all the world has to offer, we come up empty. We fall short. And there's something ironic, there's something shocking, there's something astonishing about the Corinthians acting as though they still live according to the wisdom of the world. Perhaps they're more concerned with studying their theology than knowing their God. And we can see more about that in a moment. But notice Paul's remedy. 
When he says, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or wisdom, uh, he'll say more about this in just a moment. But what he basically means is, I was more concerned with my content than my manner. I was more concerned with the message God had committed to me than to impress you. In other words, my prayer is, for example, not to stand up in a pulpit at a theology conference and walk away with everybody thinking, that was a great message. That was a great talk. I love the illustrations. I love the application. I love the way the speaker presented things. But ultimately, what Paul is really getting at is, are you walking away with the glory of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God? Is it Christ, whom he'll call the Lord of glory in a moment, that is, as it were, resonating in our hearts and impelling us forward and gripping us? And when Paul says, I didn't come with lofty speech or of wisdom, what he's saying is, I am more consumed with Jesus Christ than I am with the manner of my preaching. It's not that the manner shouldn't be good or shouldn't be interesting or doesn't matter whatsoever. It doesn't mean that as, as ministers we should not labor hard to preach well, to be simple, to be understandable. I think we miss this point many times, and I've seen this again on Facebook posts, where reformed ministers will glory in the fact that I have, I have no introduction, I have no illustrations, I've got no outline, I've got no application, and I'm walking away from this rather than thinking, isn't this great, we trust in the Holy Spirit, but I'm glad I don't, don't go to this church. The sermon sounds hard to listen to. And when Paul is saying, I didn't come to you with lofty speech or of wisdom, that's not really what he's getting at. What he's really saying is, I didn't come to you with empty words. I'm not interested in controversies and questions for their own sake. I'm not interested in how well I present things, how well I speak, so that you may think well of me in all things. But for this reason, I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, this is the pastoral wisdom of 1 Corinthians. How do you deal with a church that's divided over sacraments, that's going to law against one another, that's abusing marriage and church discipline and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper with some people denying the resurrection of the dead? What do you do? Well, you pray for wisdom that the Lord would help you show the one thing that ties all the other pieces together. And this is it. You need to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I purposed in my heart to make nothing known among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now keep in mind, there's something very significant here. And 1 Corinthians helps us illustrate and think through the point I'm making. Paul has a lot of topics in 1 Corinthians, doesn't he? I just listed a bunch of them. And perhaps even listing them, we see contemporary parallels and issues that we face in the church today. But he has one remedy to these things, and that is preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just to illustrate uh, what I have in mind here, um, I, I hate giving ne negative illustrations. I want to push this in a positive direction. If we're getting the point, I want us to walk away being excited about knowing the right God in the right way and coming to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, with the Spirit in our hearts, that so we don't just learn about God, but we know God. But I always remember at one point I was teaching a homiletics class, and we had a visitor as I was talking about the necessity of preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what I believe Paul is getting at, not only here, but in the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus Christ is not only the 
foundational building block of Christianity. He's not only the ABCs. He's the whole curriculum. He's the beginning. He's the middle. He's the end. And preachers ought to proclaim Jesus Christ in everything that they do and in every sermon that they preach. Otherwise, the fruit of the church will start looking like Corinth. You will get a lot of people who are educated in their Westminster standards, who perhaps might even know their Bibles, maybe even be able to know uh, a lot of different points, maybe even uh, able to defend simplicity and impassibility and all these other vital things we've already been talking about together. But we lose our moorings. We lose sight of the right God. And one time when I was teaching this class, I had a man uh, argue with me up and down. We don't need to preach Jesus Christ. The only reason Paul did that was because that was the problem in Corinth. They were babies in Christ. We need to move on. My dear friends, we never move on beyond Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And the rest of the text is going to illustrate why Paul is placing so much emphasis on this point. This is the remedy to the Corinthians' problems. It's as though he's saying something like this. Stop looking at the outward appearance. Stop looking at the fancy rhetoric. Here is the great means by which you come to know God. Preaching Jesus Christ. And you need to be consumed with the Savior and stop being so full of yourselves. In other words, sin always begins with self, then compares ourselves to others, then puts God last. The grace of God drives us back to the foot of the cross. And then we look at others as better than ourselves. And then if there's any room for us left, then we fit in. That's what Paul's getting at. And notice he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, there is something of a, a logic of what Paul's doing in this text, but I don't want you to miss the Trinitarian undertones of the text. It's interesting, isn't it? When we talk about the attributes of God, in, in many ways, what we're really talking about is, is what God is. What makes him to be what he is in distinction from all other beings. When we're talking about the Trinity, what we're really discussing now is who is he? In other words, something like being or essence deals with a what. The idea of person deals with a who. And our God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice how Paul seamlessly thinks along these lines. God has testified concerning his Son. You ought to cling to the Son, cleave to the Son in everything. I purposed in my heart to preach nothing other than the Son. With all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength, to make this the sum and substance of my ministry, in dependence on the power of the Spirit. And there's an either-or here, isn't there? Either the wisdom of this world or the power of the Spirit. And notice the order here. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. What does Christ do or what is his mission to us? 
to bring us back to the Father. So now, what is the great means of bringing us to the knowledge of God? Picking up the Father's testimony to his Son as the Spirit drives it home. Now, is this what we want to hear in the preaching of the Word? Do we desire every single Lord's Day, dear friends? Not just the purpose in our hearts of our preachers to make nothing known among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. But is this our purpose to hear? Are we ever tired of the glory of the Savior? Do we treat the cross, do we treat the gospel of Jesus Christ as simply the fundamentals that we put on the shelf and lay to the side, but then we get to move on to the good things? What do I believe about infant baptism? What do I believe about election? What do I believe about the extent of the atonement? What do I believe about church discipline and excommunication and church government and, dare I say, supra and infralapsarianism? <laughs> you know, I always tell students if it can happen in the church, it will. And, uh, and I've actually had people in my churches over the years that have told me, if you're not superlapsarian, you're not reformed at all. So you go figure that one out and, uh, and think of that another time if you even understand what I'm talking about. But it illustrates something, doesn't it? What do we want to hear? Let me ask it differently. What are we obsessed with? What drives us? What grips our hearts? Is it the glory of God revealed in his Son? Is it the Father saving us through his Son by his Spirit? So that by the Spirit we are trusting in the Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ. The Spirit proceeds from the Son and the Spirit always glorifies the Son and brings us to the Father. Is this the heart and soul of our preaching and our desire to listen to preaching in the church? This is the means, the preaching of Jesus Christ. This undercuts all the problems in Corinth. The second thing is the matter. Now, I suspect when I move into verses 6 through 12, there's one part of this text that's probably going to stick with you the most uh, for many of you, and I'll explain what I'm getting at uh, in a minute. But what Paul's actually getting at here is he's not only saying the great means of bringing you to the true knowledge of the true God is the preaching of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, but now he, as it were, advances the argument by saying, have you stepped back for a moment and thought about what you have? When you come to a book like 1 Corinthians, you're really coming at the end of a great epic story. God has been doing great things, many things, for many centuries. And we have at least one other Lord of the Rings fan uh, here today from an illustration earlier. And one th reason we often love books like this is we can't wait to see where the story goes. We can't wait to see the ending, how all the pieces fit together. Well, what we're reading of in the Bible is actually a divine story, the story of God's actions. God not only as the one who orchestrates history and is directing it to the end of sending his son, Jesus Christ, but who is himself participating in the story, who is the main character, as it were, and so when we come to this portion of the Bible, I believe verbally or at least in writing here, what Paul is really doing is grabbing the Corinthians by the scruff of the neck and saying, have you forgot the grandeur of God's story? Have you forgot the majesty of what you actually have? And what am I getting at? Well, this is why I've titled this The Matter. 
He's talked about the means, the preaching of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to know the right God in the right way. Now what he's saying is here is the great means. The means is the Spirit on the one hand teaching us what to believe about Christ, teaching us things that we could not know any other way or by any other means, and then as we'll see, driving it home. Now, the, art of the, the division I'm making in the text around verse 12 is a bit artificial because Paul just keeps going. But we need to pick up something of his thought process here. Notice what he says in verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, there's something quite ironic as you're reading a book of 1 Corinthians. In God's work in his son, Jesus Christ, God put his wisdom on display like he's done in nothing else and in no other way. This is not just a wise act of God. This is the wisdom of God incarnate. This is Jesus Christ putting on display, exemplifying in his person divine wisdom by who he is and what he does. And yet, what does the world say when they hear the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ? Foolishness. Instead of saying, this is the best thing I've ever heard, this is the most absurd thing that I've ever heard. Now, as Christians, at this point in the book, we're supposed to be saying, I know that. I have an unbelieving world around me. I have unbelieving family members, neighbors, friends, and they often count the gospel foolish. In fact, at least in my own case, I've had people use those exact words, that the gospel is foolishness. What you're telling me about this God in the second person of the Trinity becoming man, living and dying for us, and ultimately being crucified and raised from the dead, foolishness. And I love coming along and saying, well, the Bible saw you coming. It says that, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But now what Paul's doing is he's shifting gears, isn't he, in verse 6. Before, he's been saying what the world counts as wise is actually foolishness with God. And the wisdom of God, which he reveals in his Son for our salvation, is foolishness to the world. Now, Paul is not saying that the gospel is actually foolish, but people count it so. And we know that by our experience. But now as he turns the tide a little bit, he says, Yet among the, the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Just think about their situation in Corinth. How do you get to the point as a church, that you're actually fighting over who had the best baptism. It's quite astonishing, isn't it? I'm not getting into this here in great detail, but if you look through Paul's writings, especially later in this book and in the book of Ephesians, you know what his two favorite topics are to address disunity in the church. The Trinity and baptism. Because these are the things that tie us together. These are the things that unite us. How do you actually get to this point? Well, 
what he's effectively saying is, you have a wisdom that is from God. You are not like the rest of the world. Counting the cross of Christ, foolishness. But you're sure acting like it. You're acting as though you've lost sight of the wisdom of God in Christ. And so, see what I'm getting at when he says, I purpose in my heart to preach nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not talking about a particular strand of preaching that is suited to the church in Corinth. He is talking about a particular emphasis in preaching without which the entire church always goes off the rails. And so, consider where the wisdom of this age has taken the rulers of this age. That is the best, the brightest. Remember in the first century... Uh, the disciples, for example, often didn't take things for granted that maybe you and I do 2,000 years after the completion of the New Testament. Who is most likely to enter the kingdom? Well, surely it's the rich and the powerful and the famous. God's blessed them outwardly. Why wouldn't he bless them inwardly? Or surely those who desire to be first need to jump on it and get the best place as quickly as they can. Now, you know, you've got the, the hindsight that, that I have and that Paul has given us here in the scriptures. The kingdom of God inverts the wisdom of this world, doesn't it? It's not just about getting ahead in life, but he who is first among you, let him serve. And also, it is not the rich who have the advantage of entering into the kingdom, but the poor and the humble, those who are poor in spirit. And so what Paul is reminding them of is, why are you thinking like worldly people? Don't think like the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So I said earlier that some of your translations had mystery. Some of them have testimony. Here's where it amounts to the same thing. We often think of mystery, and I'm sure most of you know this, most of you have heard this, as something that is mysterious. And there are indeed many ways in which in our theology and in our worship and our study of Scripture, we legitimately use the term that way, don't we? We've heard that God is beyond our comprehension. We can't fully grasp him. And we recognize there that there's an element of mystery in the sense that there's something mysterious. Just go home and think about eternity for the rest of the night. What does it mean? How does it relate to God? How do you relate to time? And how is that different than the way God relates to time? God is beyond us. And yet, this word mystery and the concept that Paul's actually describing here in verses 7 and following is God has told you things that you could never come up with unless he told you. And that's going to pull us pretty rapidly through the logic of the rest of the text. And this is the part that's probably going to stick out with, to, to some of you. Because notice what he says. First of all, there's this hidden wisdom of God. There's something that God has planned, God has decreed before the ages for our glory. So we heard earlier, our, our brother said, God is blessed. And we are blessed in him. The Lord blesses us. We bless the Lord. There's this reciprocation back and forth. Though there's a, a huge qualitative difference between us and God. That's even the wrong word, isn't it? But notice here there's something of the same idea. 
this mystery, this thing that God alone could tell us without which we could never know and never participate in that ought to so occupy our attention that everything else fades into irrelevance is actually for our glory. For our, let me put it this way, reflection and blessedness of and in God's glory. The good news of the gospel is not just that God comes to us and forgives us who are miserable and poor and wretched and hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus Christ. You realize that's just the beginning of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And as he's moving from the means of the preaching of Christ by the Spirit into the matter, the, the content that the Spirit has actually revealed, what he's saying is, it's, it's as it were, Jesus Christ is the template. And the Spirit is copying his image in your heart. The gospel that has been hidden in God's counsel from before the foundations of the world is ultimately for your glory, for your glorification. To be made like Jesus Christ. Now he's going somewhere with this. And notice what he says in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For had they, if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So God predestined to send Christ to save his people. God tells you about Christ, and if God didn't, you'd never know him, and you'd never be able to come up with this stuff. Literally. That's what he's getting at. But it's also the Lord of glory who was crucified. What an interesting thing, isn't it? Shocking, really. I think we lose something of the shock value of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it becomes so mundane, so familiar, and may it never be. But God predestined us. God has decreed the sending of his son before the ages for our glorification. And when our glorious Lord appeared on the scene, men not only counted him foolish, but crucified him. Now, there's an, impl there's an implied barb here, isn't there? You Corinthians, you do realize the way you're thinking, your selfishness, your self-centeredness, the way you've lost sight of Jesus Christ, and you're only concerned about your doctrines, your practices, your faction, your party, your baptism, who's first in line for the Lord's Supper. At least I'm not like the sinner over here. You do realize that you're acting like those who crucified the Lord of glory. You ever think about that? When, not just when we come into conflict with other believers in the church, but especially in our theological communication. I think it's no secret in our circles, we attract people that, that love theology, love to think. We're here at a conference. We're here at a conference on the attributes of God. And there's a bit of a danger here, isn't there? That we can believe heavenly doctrine or the doctrine of angels, but act like those crucifying the Lord of glory. If we're seeing strife in our churches, if we're unable to resolve conflict with others, if we become proud and exalt ourselves above others, then we have lost sight of the wisdom that God has revealed in his son about his son. 
Now notice, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory, but here it comes. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor entered the heart of man, or, or no the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I trust most of you know these verses, this verse in particular. How do we quote it or in what context? Eye has not seen, ear heard, enter in the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And our first response is something like this. Heaven is going to be great. It's going to be beyond our imagining. It's going to be better than anything we could speak, anything that we could say, and, and we can't wait to get there. Now, that's, that's true, I think, on, on a real level. But notice what Paul says in verse 10. What he's actually saying is something more profoundly relevant to where they are right now, where we are today. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What he's really getting at is, are you caught up with astonishment over the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God has revealed to you is something hidden in his secret counsel and foreordination before time began. You do realize that for most of the time, if we're trying to look into the secret hidden counsel and plans of God, not only is it none of our business, it's sinful. We're trying to pry into things that God alone can know. I often tell people, you know, if, when we're asking questions like, what is God doing in my life? What is God doing in this particular tragedy, for example? If God really is who the speakers thus far have been saying he is in this conference, we wouldn't be able to understand if he told us. God is incomprehensible. God is beyond us. God sees the end from the beginning. God knows how all the pieces fit together. And ordinarily, we ought to keep our eyes straight before us. The real question is, what has God told me to do? What has God commanded me to do in his word? But you realize what Paul is actually trying to grip the Corinthians with here is here's an exception. Here is something in the hidden counsel and the purpose of God that you not only can look into, but you must. And in fact, your real problem is you're not preoccupied with it enough. Here is something in the hidden counsel of God. God sent his son to be born of a woman, to be made under the law, to suffer death for us, to be crucified as the God-man, that we might live in him forever. And you see what he's getting at is he's not just saying, I purposed in my heart to make nothing known among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, but he's actually saying, why would you want to talk about anything else? Eye has not seen, ear heard, nor entered in the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And my dear friends, this is what you have recorded in your New Testaments. The spirit's witness and testimony to the incarnate son of God. And who he is, what he's done. And notice the illustration he adds. For the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God, the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, the Spirit is the only one competent to set you in the right track, in the right direction. 
to reveal to you what you need to know about Jesus Christ. So put the pieces together. You have become so consumed with yourselves. You have become so self-centered and self-focused. Look at the fruits in your church. See what he's getting at? This is why the Corinthian church is the way that it is. And here's the way back. Here's the path forward. I purpose for my part to preach nothing, no, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The best way, dear friends, especially if you're a pastor, to preach Jesus Christ is not to come up with a technique, but to become so familiar with him, to be so enraptured in love to him that you can't help yourself. And he just spills into everything that you say. You know, some of you that know me well know I'm pretty eclectic, and I think some others here are, are as well, uh, hint of the first row up here. But basically, uh, one thing I, I love about some of the, the medieval authors, even when they're weird and allegorical and make us uncomfortable, is that they're impatient to talk about the glory of the Savior. And everything's doxological. And maybe that illustrates a point, doesn't it? Are we more concerned to say, well, we've got it right? That's a bad way of thinking of Scripture. That's allegory. That's naive. That's nonsense. When we miss the spirit of being enraptured with the Savior himself. It's hard for me to convey this in some ways, but this is really what Paul's trying to get at. This is something you would never know unless God has told you. Here's the hidden counsel of God. Why are you so preoccupied with other things? Yes, we must preach the whole counsel of God, but it must be in a context. Ultimately, the gospel is about knowing the Father through the Son by the Spirit, and the Spirit has now taught you what to believe. Now, verse 12 is something of a transition, perhaps, now, we ourselves, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Notice what he's saying here. It's not just that preaching Jesus Christ and the power of the spirit is the means by which you need to know God, but the spirit reveals the subject matter, and only he's competent to do it, but now he's saying the spirit actually does something different. It's not just a story that you hear and you're interested in, and satisfies your intellectual curiosity. But you are, as it were, a participant. You know the author. You know the main character. You don't simply know about God. You know this God because you have actually received the Spirit who reveals the Christ of God. The Spirit who glorifies the Son has taken up residence within us. And so we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So stop acting like you've received the spirit who is from the world. How do we conduct ourselves with one another? Notice how he builds this point. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Think about what he's, what he's getting at here. Here's the testimony of God concerning his son. The preaching of Christ in the spirit is the means by which you need to know God. The matter is something that only God the spirit can tell you. And now the mover is the spirit himself. He needs to move your heart. He needs to drive you to God. What do you do with people in the church who are divided and can't be reconciled to the point that they end up in court? 
I ministered in a few different churches, and, uh, and it's happened more than once. What Paul is actually saying is, you have the competence to judge all things. You have the wisdom. Why are you going to those who are incompetent judges to judge the truth? Do you not have wisdom among you? And he's going to go into that later in chapter 6, but he's hinting at the idea here. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Translation's a little bit difficult, but you're spiritually competent to discern spiritual things. Do we live as those with new eyes? Do we see ourselves and our relationship to the world, our relationship to others differently? Because ultimately we filter everything through our relationship to God and his son, Jesus Christ. Does this shape our relationships with others? Does this shape our families? Does this shape our churches? That's what Paul is getting at. And the negative here is there's a problem on the other side. The natural person does not recept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's interesting, um, the word folly here is moria in Greek. Now, some of you, if you're Lord of the Rings fans here, your mind just went somewhere when I said that. (laughs) And I cannot prove that Tolkien had this in mind, but he was a linguist, and when I read moria, I think foolishness in Greek. And what he does with the term illustrates the point, whether he had it in mind or not. The dwarves dug deep and deep, and deeper, until they uncovered great evil that threatened to consume them. And in their foolishness, they ruined themselves. Now, whether or not that's what Tolkien had in mind, it illustrates quite well what Paul is actually getting at, how things are inverted, how things are all wrong. Man's wisdom is actually folly, and he counts the wisdom of God Folly, But now he's giving the reason why this is the case. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not that this God that we're hearing about lacks glory or lacks beauty or lacks uh, majesty in himself to attract us and impel us towards him. This is actually why we're here. This is why we're made in his image, to know his glory, to declare it, to reflect his glory. But there is something wrong with our sight. There is something wrong with our hearts. There is something fundamentally off with us. And what Paul is saying is the natural person, the person without the Spirit, cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. They are foolishness. They are moria. For he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But then how should we live? What should we do in light of these things? Well, the spiritual person then judges all things but is himself to be judged of no one. Quoting Isaiah 40, which another speaker quoted earlier, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. What he's getting at is with the mind of Christ, it's not that somehow you become uh, deified or Christified or gain some insight into God that is comparable to Christ's insight of God, some sort of quasi-omniscience or God-likeness in your knowledge. What he is saying is, I've preached Christ to you, 
The Spirit has told you what to believe concerning him, and the Spirit has given you a heart for it, to receive it. You have all you need. You just need to get back on the right track. Are you thinking like worldly people, or are you thinking like spiritual people in Christ? You have the mind of Christ in reading your Bibles, in walking with God in prayer, in living in communion with the Spirit in your daily life. That's what he's getting at. And so as we have the mind of Christ, we certainly cannot instruct the Lord, but he can instruct us, and he does. And that's what Paul is actually getting at at the end of this text. Well, the big question that I'm really getting at, and really the only thing that I'm pushing home with this text, is hopefully you at least pick up something of the reasoning process in the text Paul is not addressing a particular question piecemeal or even a bunch of questions in different answers. If you, if you had a Q&A between Paul and the Corinthians and you said, what's your answer to division in the church? He'd say, Jesus. What's your answer to mistaken views of baptism? Jesus. What's your answer to problems where people are suing each other in the church? Jesus. What's your answer in thinking about marriage and spiritual gifts and all these other things is Jesus again because it is through Christ and the preaching of Christ the spirit drives us to the true knowledge of the true God what fruit do we see in our lives and our churches are we more concerned with being right or with knowing the right God in the right way And one of the greatest litmus tests of this is, are we consumed with Jesus Christ? Is he the aim of our preaching, the content of our faith, and ultimately the focal point of our hearts as the Spirit works within us? I don't normally do this, but I can't resist ending with a quote from John Owen. And uh, this is from a book that he wrote with a nice Latin title called Vindicia Evangelicae, uh, which is a vindication of the gospel. If it's got a Latin title, you know it's going to be dense and long, even if it's in English. And what he basically is doing at the time is trying to refute a heretical group known as the Sassinians, who denied the Trinity, the Incarnation, um, in, in Owen's opinion, just about everything other than the statement that the Bible is God's word. And so in this long refutation, his sole purpose is to show why these people are wrong because he thinks the gospel is at stake. But notice what he says early in the book. He's addressing people like you and I. And this fits the conclusion of 1 Corinthians 2. What am I the better if I can dispute that Christ is God but have no sense or sweetness in my heart from hence that he is God in covenant with my soul? What will it avail me to evidence by testimonies and arguments that he hath made satisfaction for sin? If through my unbelief, the wrath of God abides on me, and I have no experience of my own being made righteous, the righteousness of God in him. If I find not in my standing before God the excellency of having my sins imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to me. Will it be any advantage to me in the issue that is in the end to profess and dispute that God works the conversion of a sinner by the irresistible grace of his spirit if I was never acquainted experimentally 
with the deadness and utter impotency to do good, that opposition to the law of God, which is in my own soul by nature, with the efficacy of the exceeding greatness of the power of God in quickening, enlightening, and bringing forth the fruits of obedience in me. It is the power of truth in the heart alone that will make us cleave to it indeed in an hour of temptation. Let us not think that we are any better for our conviction of truths of the great doctrines of the gospel for which we contend with those men, those Sassinians in this case, unless we find the power of the truths abiding in our own hearts and have a continual experience of their necessity, excellency in our standing before God and our communion with him. Dear friends, let us study the attributes of God. Let us study a great many other things. But let us always ask ourselves, do we know God? Do I know God? Do I come to the Father believing his testimony about his Son? Does the Spirit drive me to the glory of Jesus Christ to be like Christ? Am I obsessed and preoccupied with Jesus Christ? This is what we need in knowing God, dear friends. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercies, and we thank you for blessing us this evening. Grant us the Holy Spirit. Lead us by your grace and in your truth, and keep us from evil.